everyone. Welcome to the Internet of Things podcast. I am your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and this is your co-host. Tired Kevin Toffel. Tired Kevin Toffel. <laughs> I'm tired. I'm tired. But I'm, ha- I'm happy to be here, though. Oh, good. I- yeah. I'm glad that you're happy to be here on our virtual podcast call here. So you just got back from Google I.O. I- hence, hence the tired part. Hence the tired part. <laughs> and we should remind everybody that Kevin does work for Google. I can actually say I work with the Android and the Chrome folks. Now I can say it as okay. a I Got it. Just so people know where Kevin is coming from. So first up, order of business, Google Home. Yeah. I no. uh-huh. oh, go on. No, I'm, no, I want to hear what you have to say because I was excited to see it. And I, I know that you were too. You I had was, to be. I was super excited. So here's my quick summary. Last week, if you were not paying attention, Google announced its Echo-like competitor. So the Amazon Echo competitor, um, it's called, is it called Google Home? It is called Google Home. And if you go to home.google.com, you can sign up and get, you know, updates on it. Yes. Which I'm sure you promptly did. I promptly did. You may get updates internally. Who knows? But so what this is, is it is a speaker and a link to Google Assistant. Which is also new. Which is also new. And unlike the Echo, it doesn't have a name that I am aware of yet. So there's no lady that you get to call out to and say, help me. I think in the demo they said, hey, Google. But there is a video that they showed that we can always go back or link to in the show notes that people can see because they show a video of a family using this device. So how they use it, I presume, would be how you would use it. Which is so exciting. So there are two features that are really freaking awesome. One, multicast. So if you have a bunch of these, you can actually link to them just like your Sonos and play the same thing in every room or a number. Yes. Yes. So you can, you can tell, uh, you can say, Hey Google. And I think that you're going to use Hey Google. I'll tell you why, because a lot of phones use the okay Google. And I paused on purpose there. So I didn't set off everybody's phones. Some people have it set for always listening. So if you were to say that, which device are you talking to? Right. Yes, that's yeah. a good point. Yes. I kind of wish they went with something a little more human, but it fits with Google mm-hmm. to be that. Yeah. But the other thing that it does before... Wait, wait, wait. Oh. Multicast. Oh, we're not done talking about multicast. Well, I just wanted to mention Google Home, and they said this in the keynote, is built on the same technology that they, that Google uses for the Chromecast products. Oh, so, yes. That is important. That is important, right. So um, the multicast, for example, if you had multiple Google Homes, you could say, hey, Google, play Rihanna in the living room. Hey, Google, play it in all rooms. Play such and such in a different room. So yes, you can multicast and control it by voice per room. So it's a Sonos-like experience via voice. But it's also, again, because it's tied into the Chromecast technologies, you can stream things to a connected TV from it via voice, which is something I want so badly on my Echo and my Amazon Fire TV, but I don't have right now. Yes. So that is key. Yes. Other thing I thought, and this this is actually a bigger differentiator in my humble opinion, Mm -hmm. which is on the video, they showed the home device beeping at the woman who's wandering around a room. Mm -hmm. And she said, hey, Google, I'm listening. And then it talked to her. It gave her a notification. And to me, this was like killer because right now my phone will 
I run Google now on my phone mm-hmm. and it tells me great pieces of information like, hey, you should leave in five minutes to make this appointment. Right. Contextual or, information gets surfaced to you. Yes. Oh, mm-hmm. that sounded so much more professional. Well, that's because I wrote about it and before the Android Wear Watches came out when I said context is king and I want Google now on my wrist. There you go. So this could be Google now in any room that you have this device, which awesome sauce. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I'm super excited about this. Now, the thing that I I wrote about it actually in the newsletter, but I'm going to surface it here too, is I am really disappointed in a couple things. One, mm-hmm. I'm disappointed that Sonos, every time I, I can't talk to it, I'm just like, wow, I've stopped using my Sonos almost completely for really subpar speakers because they're easier to talk to. So every time one of these comes out, I'm just more irritated with Sonos. Two, I don't actually want to buy a device to tie into the Google ecosystem. Because why? Just curious. Because I really want it to be more of a like, and here's where Sonos still has me. It's it's like, hey, we'll provide a really good speaker Mm -hmm. and you can put whatever software you want on it. Mm-hmm. And this, to me, is where the world should be going. Because I may want a Google device in one room. I may want an Echo in another. And I don't really want to replace my speakers. Again, this is an early adopter thing. Right, right. But this is actually going to cause people kind of, not pain, yeah, financial pain, we'll call it that, and could slow adoption because it's a lot harder to say, I'm going to commit to this whole ecosystem than it is to say, oh, hey, I'm going to buy another like Bluetooth-like speaker that has these this capability on the back end. And this is a back end product. Yeah, because, and, and this is why I mentioned, I said Google Assistant is also new because the whole back end is this new Google Assistant, which is I guess the next evolution of Google now, so to speak. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, touted on stage how Google can do, you know, this type of context better than anybody because it knows more about people and, you know, the algorithms we have, yada yada yada. And in fairness, I I actually do agree with that because when I look at the Echo, what does Amazon really know about me? Well, it definitely knows my purchase history. It definitely knows some of my consumption habits based on what music I listen to. And what queries I ask, but knows where you live, knows where I live. But Amazon itself doesn't have that relational database of all of my contextual information. Some of it, like it knows my search history, but it's not the results are not coming from it. They're coming from maybe Wolfram Alpha or um, you know Wikipedia or Bing and whatnot. What Google is saying is, we provide you all that information. You know, we don't just get your search and and your consumption and everything else. We actually have the information and we can tie it all together. So you're getting. You're right. Google Home is a front end to the Google Assistant back end. And do you want to tie into that ecosystem? I mean, that's a personal choice. And for Sonos users, I totally get it. I mean, you've invested money. You want to stick with what you have. You're happy with it. The flip side is there are a lot of people who don't have a Sonos. And Chromecast, the whole idea was use your own darn speakers. I don't care what speakers you use. Just plug in this little dongle, you know, and you can use that with Google Home and use the speakers you already have, so to speak. So I think you're right. I think there's going to be a lot of people who are like, I'm not going into this because A, I have a Sonos, or B, there's still a big mistrust of how Google uses data, what it knows, how much it knows. So there are people who just say, I don't use any Google product because I don't want Google to know everything about me. So I think that's true. And I would also say when comparing the two ecosystems, I mean, honestly, it might be nice to do both because mm. Google is banking on 
the back end and the knowledge that it has of you, right? Right. What we haven't heard yet, and it's not to say we won't, but the Echo in Amazon has built in this very open ecosystem. Yes. So what they don't know about you, you can actually pull from just about anywhere and just say, hey, I want to enable these skills. I have all this access to things. If you combine the two, man, that would be amazing. And then... I, uh, oh, let me, let, well, no, because you brought up the skills, and I agree with you. And I think Amazon's done a great job. I mean, I have the Echo and a Dot now, and we've talked about it a zillion times on the show, and I love them. And you're right. You can plug in if you're, if, I mean, you or I could write a skill and create our own little skill for, for the Echo if there isn't one out there that meets our needs. But I think Google took a different approach in that it makes it easy for developers to tap into its services a little bit easier as opposed to skills on the Echo. They seem like a, I don't want to say a hack because they're not. It's just, it seems more kludgy to me. So, yes, but. They also mm-hmm. have, and I'm sorry, everybody, they have <laughs> Alexa voice services. Yes, they do. Yes. Um, which means that if you don't want something kludgy, you can actually, again, this is a dedicated device. But in this case, the dedicated device doesn't have to be, you know, a speaker. It could just have that access to the back end. And we haven't even talked about Apple and <laughs> the fact that... <laughs> It apparently is working on something similar, and it plans to open up the SDK for Siri, or at least we're not 100% sure, because it's Apple, where it's going with this, but it wants to give developers access to Siri, which, about Yay. time. Yay! Siri came out, I want to say in 2011, and I say came out, meaning it came out on the iPhone for commercial or you know, consumer use technology and the company actually existed before that and Apple purchased it, but they implemented it into the, into iOS. I think it was 2011. I don't really see that they've done too much on that since then. Um, and I, and I've said this a couple of times in posts on a podcast. It kind of, Siri kind of got stagnant and it's, it's almost past time, I think, for this to happen, but it's still very good. It will make a lot of people happy once apps are fully integrated into Siri uh, or with Siri, I should say. Yeah, no, I mean, I've, I've started using things on, like I say, okay, and then I say the word Google mm-hmm. and I can do a lot <laughs> with my phone, you know, opening up other apps, doing crazy things. And I love it. So it's kind of my husband sometimes is like, man, Siri, hello. And you're right. It did come out in 2011, October, mm-hmm. on the iPhone 4S. 4S, yep. So, yep, yep, yep. Um, so that's that. And I think... I was going to say, just to pull in one last thing on Siri, unless you're going to talk about it more, I'm wondering what they're going to do with that and HomeKit. Well, Siri does control HomeKit. Okay. You can do things with it. And I forget, because I am not as good with numbers, time is a, a fluid thing for me. <laughs> With the always-on Siri that was in the iPhone, was it uh, 5S? It came out maybe a year ago for plugged-in devices, but now the newer devices don't need to be plugged in for right. it to work. So right. it's the non-plugged-in devices. So having until they had that, it was kind of, I thought, silly. Mm. Of course, the fact that HomeKit is not really fully baked yet is, mm. you know, kind of irrelevant. It makes it almost irrelevant. Mm-hmm. But you can say, you know, whatever the wake up word for Siri is, you know, turn on the lights in living room and it should work. Nice. Okay. Uh, so that that's, that's and I, there. And I haven't played with it 
recently enough that I can tell you what the right code words are. Sure. Um, but sure. It's all in all, I mean, what I really like is all of these products are advancing, you know, the, the user interface for your home, whether it's lights or whether it's energy things or whatever it may be, TVs. And that's really the key to me. And and I think you're going to see a lot of I'll say more competition in this space now. It seems like it's gaining traction. The market has been proven mainly, I think, by the Echo, which the CEO of Google, Sundar Pichai, actually gave a shout out on stage saying, you know, thanks Amazon for you know showing the world that this can be done and people are, are enjoying it. So, you know, it doesn't matter to me which platform you use. I think all of them are going to get immensely better over the next six to 18 months as a result of all this. And again, this is why you don't want a hardware device. No. Uh, well, yeah. I it's, all, it's all natural language processing is all done on the back end. So I, I, I'm just... Yeah, you need, you need some kind of hardware. You need microphones and you need speakers and you need something to capture and something to send the, the captured text to the you know, web services that translate the natural language processing. And so if, I hear you, but I don't know how else you could do it yet. I like... I, you mentioned uh, the web services that Amazon offers. Notice I didn't mention her name. You could build that into a TV or a wall, for crying out loud, if you had a, a speaker, a small chip, and a, and a microphone. So I like the way they're going, in a sense, because it's you can put it into any hardware as opposed to buying specific hardware. Yes, but you do have to build the ontologies for it. This says you have to build the vocabulary of words that will turn your, you know. Yeah. I imagine it on my vacuum cleaner because I really want to tell my Roomba to to fly my pretties. <laughs> it's it's a very specific desire I have. Yeah. But that won't actually work unless you know the voice services. Her voice services supports the words "fly my pretties" and recognizes yeah. that that will actually make the vacuum cleaner go. Which still, although I mean. We're making progress here as opposed to when Siri first came out, because that was really the first one. Well, see, and that's that's true. And that's where the openness, I think that's where, <laughs> you know, the echo building up the developer ecosystem mattered. Mm -hmm. I mean, Siri stagnating, I think, is partly because they not only you just couldn't do much with it beyond like what the prescribed Apple. Exactly. Was. It was a very native baked in solution. And it's finally now becoming what we, I guess, hoped it would become yay, over the top. Openness. openness. Yay for the win. Speaking of openness, one last quick thought. The one thing we did not hear from Google, well, we didn't hear a couple things. Uh, we didn't hear price or availability for Google Home. I think it was later this summer or maybe later, later this, this year. year. Later this year. Okay. Yeah. There was a lot of products announced and they're all later. Uh, you can't get anything that was announced yet, uh, except for something I know we're going to talk about shortly. And the one big missing piece to me, when I was thinking about you and I talking about this as soon as it was announced, there was no list of partner products and such that it will work with in the home other than, of course, Nest. Uh, so we don't know, you know, is it going to work with Wemos? Is it going to work with Wink and Smart Home or Smart Things and, and Belkin and, and, and all the others uh, out there? So there's a lot of open questions on who is going to be a partner for this. Yes. All right. We're moving on. Moving on. It's time. All right. These are going to be shorter conversations because that was the big news. But I'm excited about Pebble announced some new products that will launch again. Actually, not even later this year. Some of them won't come out until the beginning of next year. The Pebble Core mm. is 
I was so excited about this. You guys, if you heard me talk about it was a device called the Mighty, you'll understand why. This is a, oh man. It's a clip-on device. It's a clip-on iPod Nano-like device that has both the possibility of a cellular connection, you will have to buy your own, and four gigs of memory so it can store your Spotify playlist. You can listen to it with wired or wireless headphones. And I love it. I love Mm -hmm. the idea of not having to carry my phone on a walk or run, especially as it gets hotter and my clothes just don't have pockets. So super excited. Um, Early bird specials on Kickstarter are 69 and it's going to retail for 99, but it won't be out till January 2017. Now I run a lot both with a phone and without a phone. And I like what they've done here but I probably will not get one. And the only reason why is I can already do all that on my smartwatch. I don't need to carry my phone. I get, I have GPS in it. I have, um, where I can, tra- I have four gigs of storage. I have Bluetooth compatibility for, you know, for, um, listening to music. So I think at this price point, I think it's great. And I, and I do think they'll do well with it, but. I almost feel, and you, I'm curious, I, I want to throw this question at you, and you can please disagree with me. I almost feel like this is a little bit of a pivot for them. It is. So mm-hmm. they they also announced two new watches. Um, was it two new watches? It is, is two new watch? watches, but they're really the same old watches, watches yes. with the addition of a heart rate monitor. I think it is a little bit of a pivot. It's a record, and, and maybe they plan to do this all the time. Maybe the idea was to introduce mm-hmm. true wearable computing. And I do think wearable computing is going to have a billion different form factors. So I think it's really interesting for any company that's looking at this because personally, I think the technology should be freaking interchangeable, right? And mm-hmm. it's how you execute it that's going to be what matters. Mm-hmm. So Pebble is really, if you think about what they're doing, they're really trying to do that here. It'll be hard for a small company, though, to build a bunch of SKUs, you know, a bunch of different products, I think. But I never, you know, I'm glad to see them moving out of just smartwatches because like, yes. for for your example, like when I don't like wearing a watch when I know I'm going to sweat. Ew. No, I get it. I get it. <laughs> So I, I like the fact that they've got this core, and I also like the fact that, you know, maybe they'll get into, like, jewelry, or maybe they'll get into something crazy like sticking modules inside athletic clothes. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of where I think this will go. And I, I don't disagree at all. I, I like that they're they're recognizing we can't just be a smartwatch company. We need to be a smart wearable company. So I think you're right. I think they're going to continue innovating new products after doing smartwatches now for the better part of, I'd say, at least three years. Uh, I remember their initial Kickstarter was the largest Kickstarter ever. I do find it interesting that they're using Kickstarter again as the point of sale for this. It's kind of... They have a super strong relationship with Kickstarter. Yeah. So that's what that is about. Yeah, I totally get it. And you can go, they have retail partners as well. So it's not just a Kickstarter thing. So it's probably smart for them to leverage leverage their relationship with Kickstarter. And I, I don't want to downplay the, that Pebble Core too much. I mean, I was saying I won't buy one. It can do something that my smartwatches, my current smartwatches can't do because as a 3G connection, you know, if you want to pop a SIM card in there, you can do that. And not just could you stream Spotify instead of playing local playlists, you could actually um, 
send your location an emergency. It has a programmable button. It I has a programmable button, buttons. so you can you can hack away kind of like the you know the Amazon tile and make it a single purpose thing. And you know, again, my watch when I go out for a run and leave the phone behind, I can do everything but tell my family, "Hey, come pick me up. I've got a problem or whatever." Um, there are certain smartwatches, and, and I think you're going to see this actually quite a bit in the future. Have integrated 3G or LTE, but my watches don't. So the Pebble Core definitely has a, an advantage over what I have. We're still going to need better plans from the carriers, though. Yeah, I guess these are you know five or ten dollars a month to add as a device. I presume. Yeah, I, I have seen plan. pricing, and I I'm very curious. Yeah, that's so. that's what they've done with smartwatches that have LTE. Just add a device, like add a tablet for ten bucks. It's I suspect maybe it'll be five bucks. It's I'm a like small that trick. is. Highway robbery. Well, yeah, be- considering how much, <laughs> how little data you'll use on a Pebble Core versus, I say, a connected tablet. I, I agree. But if you portray it as like emergency contact, I suppose, you know, you're paying $10 a month for being always able to connect. Yeah. Does, now, you're, are you a Spotify user? I am. I'm okay. a paid Spotify member. And I am not. So when I sit here and, and see, that you can only stream Spotify with that 3G connection. I'm kind of like, ugh, why can't I pick and choose my... They, they're going to add other partners and maybe they'll add another music partner. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so we'll see. Okay. So this should bring us up to more wearables, which is Android Wear and Tizen, which <laughs> the rumor has it that Samsung is debating using Tizen on its smartwatches as opposed to Android Wear. Now, the story came out and was like, they are definitely using Tizen, and now it's kind of walked back a little bit. So right, yeah. The story was Samsung is abandoning Android Wear essentially, and and Samsung's a huge Android partner. So of course everybody's like, ooh, ah. But then there's been an update, which is not much of an update. I think it was in Gadget spoke to a Samsung representative and said, no, no, no. Everybody has misinterpreted this. You know, we didn't say that we're not going to do Android Wear, but yet they're not saying that they're going to either. So it's really kind of fuzzy right now. But the reality is Samsung actually started with Android Wear with its first Gear Watch uh, three-ish, two years ago. I'd say two, uh, because I know Android Wear hasn't been around that long. But they eventually came out with additional models that used their, not their Tizen, but the open source Tizen. And then they switched the Android Wear ones that they have out in the field. They sent a firmware update and updated them all to Tizen. So really... It's not a huge surprise if they don't make an Android Wear device anymore because they're really not doing it today. I think it was more of positioning that the media took, like, ooh, this is a big, big issue. And I don't know that it is or not. Okay. So there we have it. And then we'll end on an update for you guys. A couple episodes ago, we talked about vampire power consumption. And Mm -hmm. I said I would wander around with my Wemo Insight switch and test the power consumption of the Wink Mm. and the Echo. What'd you find out? They don't consume a lot of power. Nope. So the, <laughs> yay. Yay. Yeah. I was like, this is good news. Y'all. This is good news. <laughs> so the echo consumes roughly three Watts a day. Wow. That's low. Yes. Super low. Yes. Um, so I'm paying and I have really high electricity rates. I pay like 16 cents hmm. per kilowatt hour. I, I get very confused when I'm thinking about this. And so it's saying I'm going to use about 34 cents a month paying for my Amazon echo. echo. So I'm like, woohoo. Totally worth it. Mm-hmm. And then the Wink, which is the hub that I use most often, mm-hmm. 
consumes less than two watts. And that's actually the cutoff point for the Wemo Insight Switch. So I, I can't tell you exactly how much it consumes. Ah, so it could be even less. It could be even less. But so less... what did it estimate, like 20 cents a month to run it? or? Oh, man. Um, do I have my phone in front of me? Well, that's okay. That's okay. It, it has to be less than the 30-some cents from... From the yes, echo, the th- it's less than the thirty-four cents. Right. Um, let me. I'll, I'll pull. Just this a up. quarter. Just a quarter. Twenty-five cents. I don't know. That's still super low, which is awesome. It is. You should be running all kinds of crazy devices now, because why not? It consumes twenty-two cents a month. That was close. Yeah, you were. You were very close. It's saying today it's it's so far consumed less than a tenth of a penny. Wow. So that's uh, pretty awesome. So there you go. So. Both are always on connected devices that are in my house, always on, and neither is going to break the bank. However, 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 if you have, you know, dozens of them, kind of like certain people like me, you may find yourself consuming a lot of energy without realizing it. So that is the update there. Um, I can keep trying. If you guys want me to try anything in particular, I can plug things in. I'd be curious to see what a, a IP video camera consumes. Mm. Um, you want to plug in a, a FOSCAM into your Insight? Ah, that's a good point. I do have a FOSCAM. It may be packed already since we're moving, but I will I will look for it. Oh, and, yeah. And, uh, that's I, okay. I, I couldn't not assign you homework, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> At precisely the wrong time, no less. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll we'll come back. We'll circle back to that when you're unpacked. Okay. All right. And now it's time for our guest. Our guest this week is Ryan Kim, the CEO of a newly formed company from Belkin. And we will find out what they're doing. There's a lot of noise and hype surrounding the Internet of Things market. Every day, another company emerges, adding to the growing din. It's difficult to rise above the noise and position your company as a leader. Callisto is a marketing communications agency in the Internet of Things. They have successfully launched IoT startups and turned them into market leaders. They have positioned incumbent companies in IoT, providing unique messaging and campaigns that help them stand out as thought leaders. Everything Callisto does is centered on creating a strong ROI for its clients' marketing programs. Through its content marketing, public relations, and social media services, Callisto can help you tell your unique IoT story to the influencers that matter in this growing market. For a free consultation, contact Marissa Evans at mevans at callisto.com or visit Callisto at www.callisto.com. And now, back to the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham. And today I have Chris Klein, who is the CEO and co-founder of Ratio. Hey, Chris. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for coming on the show. We get a lot of questions about Ratio. But for the listeners who don't know what this is, can you give them a brief overview of what you are selling? Sure. So we make an internet-connected sprinkler controller for residents. Uh, it replaces um, the existing timer that you would find on your wall in your, your garage. And once it's connected, uh, we help consumers, um, you know, uh, gather some information about their about their zones and their landscape. And then our uh, cloud takes that information and it'll do things like adjust the frequency of watering, adjust the duration of watering, and it'll even watch for rainstorms and make sure you're not watering in the rain. 
awesome. And I will let you guys all know that I actually installed one of these about two weeks ago at my father-in-law's house because I don't have any lawn to water, but he does. And we'll talk about that in a future episode, but it was really easy to install. And so far, my father-in-law is having a lot of fun with this. What I was actually kind of surprised at when I installed it, I connect to a a weather station that actually is kind of far away from the house that I installed it at. Um, and that, you know, I was like, oh, there's no sensors here. I kind of had always thought, hey, for something to be really intelligent, there should be sensors. So I'm very curious, like, do you have plans to kind of add to the product or do you think maybe, you know, you'll do that through like an ecosystem play? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And um, I think weather specifically is one that we get uh, a lot about and a lot of questions around and very specifically, the same exact circumstance that you ran into where there's a weather station that is, you know, five or six miles away. But I think the really good news is, uh, you know, so one, yes, we could absolutely approach this from a hardware perspective and create another um, consumer product, possibly even an accessory. But I think we can also leverage uh, other products that are out there like uh, NetAtmo or, you know, any number of uh, connected weather stations. And not only that, you know, we're just using one weather service and we plan to add to that. And so you can imagine that there is a number of weather services out there that incorporate personal weather stations and all kinds of weather information that will make this sort of digital version of weather um, better and, and give you better resolution as, as a user. I feel like I don't know if I want digital versions of the weather. I, I feel like the real world analog versions of the weather are good enough for me. There are, uh, you know, some services are getting really good at um, analyzing radar and weather stations and I think even using weather balloons and, you know, they're even getting down to basically one square kilometer of high resolution weather, um, you know, every 15 minutes, which uh, starts to get really cool when you can kind of get that digital version of it uh, and use it in our, in our software. Okay. No, that, that would be cool. So let's think about how all this plays out because a lot of companies, I feel, miss the mark as a startup. They're like, hey, I've got this idea. I can make sprinklers better by adding, you know, intelligence. But I think that a lot of them don't realize that maybe the end service that you're delivering here isn't a connected sprinkler that's easier to program, which, hey, is great, but it's actually the ability to use like less water. I know that's what my father-in-law is most excited about. So I'm curious how you see kind of ratio when you think about the actual problem you're solving and how you might get there. We started the company with with a mission to really save water and, and make it available to for consumers um, in a sustainable way. And, you know, water use outdoors is, is huge in, in the U.S., and, you know, a smart sprinkler controller and, and no matter where the input comes from in terms of weather and, and soil and even flow sensors, you know, you can really start to dial that in. And especially what's great, that's what's great about a connected product is we can update the software over, over the years and make it better and better um, and, and really reduce that, that waste. And that's really interesting for municipalities too. A lot of municipalities and uh, utilities in, in the West that have water reduction efforts uh, that there are goals or objectives that they're trying to meet. I think what, what's really cool is when you have connected products, you can start to give them analytics that they can look at and see if they're meeting their targets or even predictive analytics on when we think we might water, um, maybe based on last year or what we're seeing in the upcoming couple of weeks or months. I was thinking about this because here in Texas, we have, you know, huge water conservation programs. And I was thinking, you know, if everyone in my neighborhood, for example, had one of these and you could aggregate like the neighbor neighborhood data, right now we've got water restrictions. So like you can water like maybe one day a week if you're on one side of the street and another day the other day, you know, if you're on the other side. But with a system like this, if everyone had some sort of intelligent sprinkler system and that data was, you could contribute that data to a neighborhood pool, you could actually maybe do a lot more 
I guess, personalized watering. And maybe maybe the city takes over that, or maybe you guys take over that and offers it as a service. I'm, I just think the power there is really interesting, but I'm not sure how we could ever get to something like that. No, yeah, and that's, that's uh, super interesting to us as well. And actually, we've even worked with a couple of municipalities that if you have our controller, um, you don't have to follow the restrictions because of some... We have um, a certain type of schedule that only really waters when it when it needs to, and you know promotes obviously efficient water use. But uh, I think you know you touched on it that as as a community, you know almost like a, a budget. And look, it's a fair budget. It's hey, we only have this much water to to use outdoors, um, and this is the most optimal use for it. Uh, and you know the municipality and customers and uh, technology can work together to uh, you know really create an, an outdoor basically a sustainable watering plan for the outdoors. To me, that's fascinating. Although then you kind of get into issues of like, hey, maybe instead of St. Augustine, you have buffalo grass, which is far more water efficient, although it also turns brown when it gets really hot. Uh, Is that something you guys would ever wade into? It feels like such a fraught. I mean, Americans love their lawns. So is that something you guys are thinking about or how have any ideas how we could address things like that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would, I think we would even love to be able to make recommendations on, you know, people in, in your area have, you know, this many zones or this, this much square footage of, of lawn, whether that be buffalo grass or Kentucky bluegrass. And, you know, you may consider switching some of these zones out to uh, more of a, a zero scape or a, a drought resistant type zone. And here are some recommendations for how to do that. And, you know, I, I think that's definitely part of our plan as well. Um, and you're talking to a lady who has a bunch of cactus and rocks. So I am. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. You, are de- you definitely have the zero escape going. I do. I, I've given up. That's kind of the long-term vision. Today, you guys are on your second generation product. What have you learned? Because the last time I talked to you, I think it was before you launched your first generation product and you were amazing because y'all were already in, y'all were going into Home Depot. So how has it been? What have you learned from now two generations of product? Yeah, so it's been uh, a fantastic learning experience. And I I think one of the main things we learned, and I I know this should just be a given, but it's sometimes harder than it seems, but create a really reliable product, you know, front to back, uh, hardware to software connectivity, customer support, everything that goes with, you know, helping a customer sometimes, you know, it's their first connected device or even their second, make that transition into a a connected world where they've gone from wanting to, you know, control this through knobs and dials, or maybe not even wanting to, but that's what they were doing, um, to controlling it through their phone. And then, you know, the next leap of, hey, um, we're going to start taking over watering for you. We're going to watch for weather and we're going to adjust your schedule over the months. And, you know, that was another learning experience is that helping build that trust with those, those customers uh, over time and, and making sure they had the information at their fingertips, knowing what the system was doing. And I, that was a big learning experience for us. Was like, that was kind of first and foremost, get all that right. And then there's ways to kind of optimize from there. And specifically, because I know a lot of companies are trying to get their products into big box retail. Do you have any words of wisdom for those guys? I think for us, we were in a lucky situation where we were the first product of our kind and uh, retailers were really looking to build out this connected home, you know, these connected home categories. So a number of them got in, in touch with us uh, as they did with other folks that were entering the space at the same time. They evaluated the products and, you know, they, they brought ours in. So I, I think getting into retail wasn't necessarily difficult for us. And I think that was just a function of timing and uh, the product we were launching. Um, and even things like like drought in the West, 
But uh, actually selling through the channel is where, you know, it starts to get a bit more difficult. And I think that's where we're really learning as, as a company now. Okay. So what are some of the things you've learned so far? Telling the story of IoT at the shelf is, uh, is difficult. There's a lot of information to kind of pack into that small area that you have on, on a shelf. You know, one thing that we're finding uh, right now at retail, and, you know, I've witnessed it firsthand uh, just last weekend, for example, uh, is that uh, it's really, uh, it appears to be a destination sale um, where you have a lot of customers that are, are learning about the product prior to coming into um, the stores themselves. You know, I visited a store uh, just last weekend and I was talking to someone in the irrigation aisle um, and uh, the gentleman there, you know, told me that it's not a lot of units, but um, it's amazing how many people come in and ask for it by name. Uh, and I was uh, at the smart home end cap and I was standing there. I had another gentleman walked up and you know said, I'd love to have the wink end cap. Where is it? And, you know, I think that's what we're seeing right now at retail is that it's really the onus is on the startup or companies like us to kind of bring those people to the shelves to go buy the product. Um, they're not necessarily, we haven't kind of found that magic formula for them, them learning at the shelf quite yet. Got it. And that's difficult. No, that there's a lot of information to convey. And I'm I'm delighted by the idea that, you know, you're standing out in the the eco or the home irrigation aisle of a local hardware store. <laughs> <laughs> Best way to learn about it. I'm like, I am often at the lighting aisle or the wink end cap of my, my local Home Depot. So I'm like, yeah, yeah. Accosting random strangers. Hi. Do you know about this? <laughs> so how is it? dealing with your customer base? Because one of the things that I find from people who have built, you know, pretty successful connected products is they have a very vocal and dedicated customer base who is not afraid to tell them when they mess up. And I think it's both a blessing and a curse. So I'm curious, like how you view your, I don't know if they're early adopters still, but your customers. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny you should ask that. We, uh, we have a very vocal, um, customer base and we love it. Our community is super active online as they are even, you know, through a variety of other channels, uh, including just emailing our support directly, but our community specifically, they give us great feedback on all kinds of features, things we're planning, things that we haven't planned yet. I can give you a great example is uh, we were trying to simplify the product a little bit and actually produce a better scheduling system. And we uh, removed a feature um, that is a certain type of watering called our, our flex schedule. And the reason we removed it is it's, it can be somewhat unpredictable sometimes, um, but it really is uh, the right way to water. And our community was great in helping us understand that we should bring it back. Um, and we listened to them and they brought up some really great points that we hadn't even thought through. Uh, and because of that, we're, we're excited to, to bring it back and continue to iterate on that product with them and actually really know what the problem is that we're solving now. That kind of stuff is invaluable. True. Now, how then, as you become, hopefully, we'll cross our fingers, more successful, how do you kind of account for the demands of a vocal few, perhaps, like your hardcore users, and then what everybody else needs? Because I think that's going to be a challenge for a lot of these companies as they find success. Oh, absolutely. And that's a conversation that we have on a, on a daily basis. And I think for us, it was, I'll try to give you an example of like the learning experience we went through. You know, we didn't try to make a, a knee-jerk reaction, but we, what we wanted to do was replace one type of schedule with a different type. And, you know, we talked about it as a group and said, Hey, if we weren't going to, if we were just going to say that we were going to remove this feature, the feature that we ended up, the scheduling type that we ended up turning off, would we actually do that? Or were we compromising and saying, Hey, we'll replace it with this, you know, new schedule. And we learned the new schedule really wasn't what they were looking for. And once you kind of went through the process of vetting that out and saying, well, actually, all we've done is taken away a feature that 
you know, a certain percentage of our customers really like, uh, and we made a decision that we should bring it back until it can be completely replaced um, with something that would make them happy. And it is hard to evaluate the minority versus the majority, but we do have data and we have an idea of, you know, how many people have those types of schedules. And, um, you know, we were able to make a, a fairly educated decision on that. Awesome. And what is next for you guys? You've done the the first gen sprinkler. Now you've added sprinkler controllers. Sorry. Now you've added zone, more zones and made a second gen product that's, I'm assuming, better in some way. And then I think you have like an enclosure, an outdoor enclosure that you sell. I don't know if you guys make that, but. Oh, yeah, we do. Yep. Yeah. So what might be next? I mean, there's some logical extensions of ratio, but. Yeah. You know, there's there's kind of two paths to go down. Um, and I think one is uh, the the accessories kind of model, and there's a number of pieces of hardware and consumer products that are on our roadmap that we can make that would I think complement the controller nicely. But you know, there's the I think the software core of the company um, is also very excited about um, some of the natural extensions that maybe you know tie some some enterprise in, and, and I or maybe business in. And what I mean by that is, you know, there, there's sort of two adjacent markets that are really interesting to us. And um, one is uh, the professional landscape space. 70% of these controllers have been installed by professional landscapers for um, years. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're trying to learn from them about what makes our controller special to them and how it can possibly improve their businesses or make their communication with the customer better or, you know, create strong relationships and bonds. Uh, and we'd love to produce um, products for them that, that can help them with that. And the other adjacent market is, is really utilities and, and municipalities. It's, it's really interesting to see how they're approaching water conservation problems or even things as um, simple as peak shaving. Uh, and, you know, what really starts to happen when you have this sort of these connected nodes out there that can help solve some of these bigger problems. So I think it's going to be a balance of, of those types of products uh, and they're all exciting for us. And, you know, we're, we're looking forward to continually to, to build out these new and innovative products. Awesome. When I opened my ratio, I noticed that this was actually the whole thing's made in America, possibly all made in Colorado. And I, I did want to ask you about your manufacturing efforts because that struck me as unusual. Yeah, there's a lot of things that go into that. And one, uh, you know, when we were first launching the product, we wanted to be close to our manufacturer. We wanted to be able to move with speed and agility and at the same time, you know, be close to the design process, be able to, you know, we're, we're 45 minutes from our, our two manufacturers. And uh, I can't tell you how valuable that has been in so many different circumstances where you get to drive up to the, the factory, you get to help problem solve on the site, you know, get the process back up and running. So I think that was the most important thing for us when we were first starting. Uh, but at the same time, I can't tell you like how great it feels to walk onto uh, the floor of a manufacturer um, and, and see that you know you're helping put uh, people to work uh, and that um, people are excited to work on your product and that's a great experience as well. And so far, it's been rewarding enough that uh, you know we want to continue to to manufacture here in the U.S. All right, how many do you guys produce a day? Um, we can produce up to two thousand a day. Wow. Awesome. Chris, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. That's all for this week. And we'll see you again next week on the Internet of Things podcast. 